Hello, and welcome to the next episode of The Real Woman Podcast, focused on all things cinematic. My guest today is Maggie McKay. Welcome, Maggie. Thank you so much. Uh, And the movies we're focusing on today, I think this is going to be really fun, are both from 1991. Uh, The first movie is Point Break, directed by Catherine Bigelow, starring Keanu Reeves and Patrick Swayze. And the second movie is directed by Ridley Scott, and that is Thelma and Louise, starring Gina Davis and Susan Sarandon. Uh, So just getting into a little trivia first. Actually, before I go into the trivia, Maggie, tell us a little bit uh, about yourself, your your background in film and and, uh, sort of how you got to where you are now. Um, okay, well, I'm, I'm very pleased to do that. I'm especially pleased to say that I met Emmy Perryman in 1985 mm-hmm. in New York City at the Center School. So we go back yes, we a do. long time. Yes, we do. And and I, I have to say that a lot of my film interests and, and a lot, everything about who I am sort of I think grew out of growing up in New York uh, and going to a lot of movies. Um, that that was the basis for all of my professional pursuits down the road and, and my academic pursuits. And I don't remember what we talked about, but I know you and I talked a lot about movies when we were kids. I also remember a long extended conversation about John Steinbeck when we were very young, which I think is a testament to um, the New York City education system. Yes, I, and, 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 a, and a testament to your memory because I have no memory of that. Yeah, that's the only that's the only memory I have of that. But, okay. um, but I remember he was a tourist scene in, in um, Grapes of Wrath. I was about to, but, I, you um, know, Grapes of Wrath was in my head, so maybe I do have a little vestigial <laughs> memory of that. Deep in there. It's yes, just, it's just deep in there. And um, so I, you know, after uh, many years of of talking about movies, um, I went to school, I had an undergraduate and a master's that are both um, circle around film studies and film criticism. And then I uh, moved to Los Angeles right after I graduated from grad school and immediately launched into a film festival programming um, career. It's one called us a career, um, but loved it. Uh, worked really closely with filmmakers and emerging filmmakers and uh, did a lot of retrospective screenings over the years and really unique events. And I would also say that, that my interest in film was really born out of video store. Um, sometime in the early 80s, a video store opened across the street from my house in Soho, um, which was not what Soho is now, of course. Right, unfortunately. Unfortunately. And it was right around the time that I think, you know, Aton Pates had happened in New York, and New York was becoming, Lower Manhattan was becoming, you know, increasingly scary, the crack epidemic was really hitting, mm-hmm. and Ronald Reagan shut down 
of the mental health facilities, especially, you know, in the, in the lower part of Manhattan had really made places like Soho quite scary. And oh, I, I remember my mom, I lived on remember? the Upper West Side and I lived yeah. just down because I lived near Center School. And uh, yep. so I was right by um, what was called then Needle Park. Yeah, on 72nd exactly. Street, and you could, like, going to the orthodontist, you know, I'd walk by there and just see, you know, crack vials and little baggies, and, and I somehow knew what they, like, I didn't know, I probably didn't know specifically what it was, but I knew kind of what it was, like, I, you know. Yeah, um, we did, we were, we were, I think we were highly attuned to that stuff, even though we were little kids and we were doing our little kid thing, we were also well aware of what was going on around us yeah yeah to at least some degree but kids are able to the kids are so self-centered that um it kind of is a protective tissue around <laughs> your you know your innocence yeah um but, but that, that tissue point, becomes think, much thinner in new york <laughs> exactly exactly um but i think when the video store opened it, the video store opened right around the time that new york was getting scary enough that my mom was really feeling like she had to limit some of my freedoms because, you know, from the time I was around nine or 10, I mean, we were, you know, we were ranging around in little packs of kids and skateboards and going to school by ourselves. I went to dance class. Riding the subway. Oh, definitely. I went to dance class um, down at Times Square by myself, Saturday mornings. By yourself, in the 80s. My mom wasn't going to get up and And take me down there. (laughs) No. Yeah. Why would she? No. And, and then when that when things started getting really quite complex, at least in my neighborhood, um, and around my neighborhood, I think my mom kind of threw down and was like, "Okay, you, you really, you really can't be out by yourself, especially you know after dusk." And you know, I always say like suburban kids had bikes. And we had the video store and the movie theater. Yeah. Because yeah. that was where we could have some freedom. And so the video store opened up. It was A, where I had a little bit of agency. I could be there by myself. I could explore by myself. I could pursue interests that were my own. I could rent, um, you know, trading places Yes. And delirious 17 times, yes. and no one cared. Right. And right. which then based the, was, those movies became the basis of my sense of humor, which um, tells you, I think, a lot. <laughs> but I ended up um, really falling in love with film because of the video store and the movie theaters that I had access to, like The Quad and Film Forum and the what was then The Waverly which I'm sure you know well, which we probably went to oh, yes. together. Oh, yes. It's um, now IFC, I think. Yeah. Yeah, it's now the IFC Center. Yep. And um, I saw Stand By Me about 17 times in that movie theater with all of the babysitting money that I had saved up. I had, um, to, I had to beg my mom to take me to Stand By Me. But, you did? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. They were our age. I, yeah, yeah, but there was, lot of cu- there was a lot of cussing. There was a lot of cussing yeah. in it. And so yeah. my, my, my rationalization was they weren't going to say anything that I hadn't already heard. 
Well, please, especially in New York. Exactly. So she was like, okay. You hadn't already heard from me. <laughs> Probably. Your, your 10-year-old friend. <laughs> yes. Yes. Uh, so anyway, the, the, this, the long end of that, what was supposed to be a short story, is that I ended up all those years later um, meeting uh, Patty and Kathy from Vidiot's, which is one of the most beloved video stores in Los Angeles, if not the world. Uh, and Vidiot's had become a nonprofit and they were looking for an executive director, and I landed there. And um, we, right around a year ago, or a year and a half ago, we closed the video store at our historic location in Santa Monica. We put everything into storage, and now we're relaunching as an expanded film space in a new location, hopefully um, in in coming months and, and hopefully by 2020. Oh, that's awesome. So I ended up back at the video store. Yeah. So from you came full circle. Video, I came full circle. So, and a lot of what we're going to talk about today, I mean, I saw both Point Break and Thelma and Louise in the movie theater, and Thelma and Louise at least three times in the movie theater, and Point Break probably once or twice, definitely once, maybe twice. So... But then the video store sort of supplemented my affection for those movies because I had access to them over and over and over again right. from that point on. Right, right, right. But at that time, unlike now, it took like two or three years before a movie was on video. Now it's I, like I you can... I didn't always take that long. Maybe not that long, I, but I it, took, it, it was much slower than it is now. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it was a much slower process, which was really, you know, it was a smart, it, it was smart for theatrical. It was a good system for theatrical, although I think, I, I'm sure that Patty and Kathy, at least in the 80s and 90s, would have said that it was frustrating for them not to be able to get things quicker. Um, but I actually don't know the history well enough to say, like, how long it would take. He could tell you that, but... Um, but then once something came out, you know, you could really, you could study a film for as long as you wanted. Oh, yeah. Oh, mm -hmm. yeah. Um, so let's get into <clears throat> these movies. I, uh, I looked up a little trivia. I always think it's interesting to learn who was initially considered for those roles. Uh, oh, lay it on me. So <clears throat> for, for Thelma and Louise... The actual, um, the writer of the of the screenplay, Callie, Callie Corey. Yeah. She, when she wrote it, she had in mind uh, Holly Hunter and Frances McDormand. Wow, I've never heard that before. And I thought that would, I mean, I loved Susan Sarandon and Gina Davis, but I would have totally loved to have seen those two in it as well. I, I mean, I'm so, I, I will very proudly admit my deep, I mean, I don't have to admit it, it's a great movie. It's not, it's not like a, you know, like a dirty secret. I love Thelma Louise. So the idea of anybody else in that movie, but I can see Frances McDormand. I can totally see Alejandro and Frances McDormand. You know? I, I can. 
yeah. I, I saw that when I read that. I was like, oh my god, I could. Yeah, totally. I could definitely see them in it. But who in which role? Well, I'm assuming I've, Francis in in Susan's role, and okay, and so Holly. That's what I would think. Yeah, yeah, and right. Holly Hunter as as um, Louise or yeah, I'm yeah, gonna, yeah. Um, uh, yeah, Holly Hunter in, in Gina Davis's role. So I think that's I think that's how it would have been. So, but then, you know, by the time it was written and they were starting to look for people, that those two they sort of fell by the wayside. And then the next two actresses who were considered, who were really actually lobbying for it uh, very strongly, <clears throat> were Meryl Streep and Goldie Hawn. Which yeah. sounds a I little. I could see that too. I could see it. It sounds a little bonkers. Like I mean, it sounds a little like Frances McDormand and Holly Hunter make a little bit more sense to me than Meryl Streep and Goldie Hawn. They and and basically, it took too long, and they ended up doing Death Becomes Her. Right. Of course. I mean, the the problem with those two is that they were so famous by that time. I mean, Susan Sarandon was really, really famous by then. But I, I think, I mean, first of all, I'm, I'm so pleased things worked out the way that they did. Because yeah. I love both Death Becomes Her and Thelma and Louise. But I just, I don't, I have to say I don't see Goldie and Meryl in that movie. I, yeah, no, I don't. And I actually think they would, well, I don't know their exact ages, but I feel like, I feel like Goldie would have been a little older, like a little because Gina Davis was younger than Goldie Hawn. Right. I just feel like that too. Right. The, the, you know, and clearly Susan was, Susan and Meryl are probably closer in age. Um, right. But they just sound, even in 91, they sound like they would have been a little too old for that part. Um, yeah, I don't know. You know, I mean. I mean. I don't know. I just think, yeah. and it's and it's almost. This is going to sound terrible, and I don't mean it to sound the way it is going to sound. But because I think that Susan and Gina are great actresses, I almost feel like Meryl would have been too good in a weird way. Like 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 she would have acted. You know what I mean? Like she would have become Meryl. I don't know. Like well, like she's I mean, a little too serious. I think that has less to do with the ability of the actor and more to do with the perception of the audience. Yeah. And that's where I think that would have been a really hard, you know, I mean, you can, you can see there are actors now who you've seen so many times and who are so famous that it can be a challenge to, to cast them because, it's right. hard for an audience not to see that to see who they are. I mean, it, you know, and 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 then sometimes that conundrum drives them to roles that they wouldn't ordinarily take. But Thelma and Louise is such. I, I feel like it's such a turning point in film, and it's such a turning point for women and for girls who were, uh, you know, coming of age at that time, like we were. Yeah. Yeah. That to make any even slight change, I mean, nobody ever talks as much about the Harvey Keitel, you know, Susan Sarandon relationship in that movie, but 
like any kind of alteration of a movie like that, you can't even imagine it. Um, and I, so who and are I'm, they going to cast for um, for Point Break? Well, <laughs> this I have to say, when I read it, I le- I like legitimately laughed out loud because it sounds so like what? Um, <laughs> Matthew Broderick and Charlie Sheen. No. Yes. No. They were up. Never. <laughs> yes. Like I, I, like, I, I love Matthew Broderick, but, but, but again, like, honestly, but again, by that point, he was so famous. He was Ferris Bueller, man. Yeah, yeah. And I'm sorry, but no one, no one can touch Keanu. Like, come on. I know. Like, what are we, joking? Yeah. Oh, and Patrick Swayze, who I... I love Patrick Swayze. I I love him. I think and he's actually really underrated. That he's not around anymore. I think he's actually really underrated as an actor. Um, I do too. I think he's I sort totally of. I agree. You know, I think because um, Dirty Dancing has sort of fallen into this sort of mythic, you know, area of yep. film, um, and so he's sort of like a. Not cliche, but just, you know, I don't know. It's like he's that character, and it's just, it's almost like it's not, he's not taken seriously enough because of that movie. But for me, like when I think Patrick Swayze, I think The Outsiders, which I love. Oh, me too. 100%. You know, I love The Outsiders. Yeah. Uh, I was saying the other day, The it's Outsiders. It was the first That's book I read that when I finished it, I started it again. And it was the same thing with the movie. Like, I finished the movie, and I rewound it, rewound the VHS, and started it again. Yeah, absolutely. You and every other, you know, 10-year-old girl. How old are it? Let's see what year was that. 1983. Yeah, yeah. So we were like, I think we were eight. I totally remember that. I remember when the video store opened, that was one of the early discoveries in the video store because I think I was too young to have seen that in the movie theater. Yeah, I was too young to see and, it in the uh, theater, but I definitely, I feel like it was actually on HBO quite a lot. Yeah, I did not, we, I did not have cable. Okay. When I, d- I was growing up. Well, you see, my dad was a big boxing fan, so we had to have oh, HBO yeah. to watch the fights. Yep. So, yeah, my so. husband had HBO, and I feel like it, it, it definitely made him, um, you know, it, it. he has a frame of reference for certain things that I don't have because he had MTV and HBO. I eventually caught up with MTV because I could go to a friend's house and watch it. But the rotation on HBO, especially in the 80s, could be its entirely its own podcast series oh, yeah. for like oh, yeah. five years. That was my TCM before TCM. Yeah, I mean, it was. It was really incredible. They were doing amazing stuff. Um, so yeah, so, uh, that's, you know, when I think Patrick Swayze, I think the outsiders, um, and I love Dirty Dancing, actually. I really enjoyed it. Uh, I've seen that movie probably more times than I should have. Um, I really, I I love that movie. Yeah, it's, it's, and it's, and it definitely has its cheesy bits, but it's so, it's again, kind of like Point Break. It's just fun. It's really, yep. you know, um, and and I think that if you're going on, like, 
I don't know. I feel like certain movies are are sort of viewed in different ways. And, you know, Point Break, you don't go into Point Break expecting Citizen Kane. You know, like, like it's not maybe the highest level of art, but it's just, it's technically done really well. The camera work, the, the you know, the very first scene, um, or one of the first scenes when um, uh, Keanu Reeves is talking to John C. McGinley and they're walking, yep. it, you know, it's like, that's a continuous shot, um, yep. you know? And so, like, technically, I think it's really good. And, you know, sure, the plot's a little, you know, maybe a little bit implausible, but it was a summer movie. And as far as I'm concerned, it's better than the summer movies that come out now. Like, it's just pure, unadulterated fun. And there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. Yeah, and I, I mean, I think, you know, we're, we, when you pitched this to me, we talked about the female gaze, and I have so much to say about female gaze that I was like, yes, I want to do a podcast with Emmy talking about female gaze. But I think that that is a really, really important part, the way that um, those 80s, and, and I sort of consider 1991 to still be, you know, the sort of end, the last gasp of the 80s, yeah. because it really was more in the 80s, you know, culturally than in the 90s. But, you know, I, I, I think that um, there have been some very strange changes to the way uh, that mainstream film portrays sex positivity in in its most mainstream sort of representations and it's very different than it was when we were growing up I mean we had Thelma and Louise we had Dirty Dancing we had Bull Durham we had a laundry list of movies that were really focused on sex positivity yeah. and there you could see sex it wasn't on um, you know like an illusion of sex it, it wasn't um, a hint of sex there were actual positive sex scenes in movies in mainstream movies um that a teenager like me could see or a preteen could see and you know, be interested in and curious about. And um, I think sex positivity in mainstream media is really, really fundamentally important to women and the health of a society. And, you know, it's interesting. I, I read a little bit they, that when they were doing the casting for um, J.D., who eventually went to Brad Pitt, a young 23-year-old Brad Pitt. Um, Gina Davis was doing the re- was you know reading with each of the guys, and uh, at the end, the casting directors sort of apparently they didn't know who they were going to go with, and and Gina Davis it was Gina Davis who was like uh, the blonde one, duh. <laughs> like, hello. Oh, yeah, yeah. And so, you know, I think it's really um, important that women, um, 
be a part of those, you know, whether it's the actress or an actual casting agent, that women be a part of the casting process because men don't always know what women find attractive. You know, yeah. I mean, you you would think now, how could they not have seen Brad Pitt and immediately known that? But they didn't. And it took a woman yeah. to say, uh, that guy, you know, it reminded me of um, uh, when they were casting for Nightmare on Elm Street. Uh, uh, John Carpenter, not, why did I say John Carpenter? Um, who, who, Wes Craven. Um, did Nightmare on Elm Street. He was casting for the Johnny Depp part. And he had put him in the no pile. And it was actually like his daughter or niece or someone, but like it was a woman, it was a girl, who said, uh, that guy. And he was like, really? Him? Like he thought he was sort of, you know, kind of feminine and not really masculine like like men have this idea that women are always attracted to the uber masculine type and sometimes you know it takes a woman to say no this guy you know this is the guy that's actually attractive um yeah or maybe maybe these you know these uh, you know powerful men trying to cast movies um, they don't, maybe they're instinctually not looking at the bracket of the world because they're just too beautiful and we don't want to set up, you know, that as the standard for all American women, um, which in a lot of ways, if you think about it, it really did. I mean, Keanu Reeves and Brad Pitt, when I was growing up, were that that was the fantasy. Oh, yeah. And it was specifically because of movies like Point Break and Thelma and Louise that women like us grew up believing and feeling and knowing that sex and maybe love, which I was far less interested in as a teenager <laughs> and as a young adult, but that sex with men that looked like Keanu Reeves and Brad Pitt was attainable. Right. And I... I quickly I learned that, that it wasn't. Is, <laughs> no. Well, I mean... But I, but I think that the, the problem, in a lot of ways, when you don't have movies that are sex-positive, mainstream movies with actual sex in them, I mean, I don't mean real sex, I mean, like, actually showing a sex scene versus the before, the right before and the right after, and right. everybody keeps their clothes on the whole time. Right, right. Which is what I see a lot of now in mainstream movies, and what I think you see, it's interesting, I was just scrolling through all of the movies from, like, the sort of bigger movies from 1991 and then 92, 93, and as you scroll through those movies, and I'm not again. I'm not talking about indie movies. I'm talking about mainstream. What was available yeah. in the mainstream? You can start to see this shift, and it's shifting away from women, men and women having sex with their clothes off, um, the way that actual men and women have sex. And especially if you look at the coming of age movies, you see a dead stop on films made 
about people that look like real people. Right. And that, I think that that that's, I mean, I'm sure there are a thousand graduate students right now writing master's theses on (laughs) what damage that's done to the, you know, to the female psyche and to the male psyche, to be quite frank, um, and what that's done to us as a society. And I think, you know, it's, it's interesting watching that sex scene again in Thelma and Louise, like, it's not, it's slow, you know, like, they, it's, it's, they're, they're, they don't just, I saw a movie the other day that, um, I just saw like a few minutes of it, but like, basically this woman just like jumps on this man and they have sex. And I was like, who, who does that? They, I don't even think their clothes were off. I didn't see her underwear come off. There's no foreplay. She just jumps on top of them and they start having sex. And I was like, that's not uh, real, (laughs) you know, like who, and I, and, and and it, I see it a lot where, um, you know, a couple will wake up or whatever and they've, or they've clearly just had sex and the woman still has her bra on. And I'm like, who are all these women who are having sex with their bras on? I mean, for crying out loud. That's like the fir- that's the first thing to come off. I mean, yep. you and know, no woman wants to be the, in their bra. No, and that's one of the famous shots in in Point Break is Lori Petty. You know, they're laying in bed, and Lori Petty is on her stomach sleeping, and Keanu Reeves is deep in thought. Yes, um, you know, trapped between you know his his bad boy self and his FBI. Right, right. And she specifically does not have any clothes on. Yeah. And and there and there are multiple scenes with you know, post coital scenes where it's very clear that neither of them have clothes on. And I think it's really important. And and I and I think it's really important to go back to it again that Lori Petty was cast in point break. She's extremely beautiful. I mean, she's exquisitely beautiful. She, I would not call her a, you know, an average looking person, but she feels like a real person and, yeah. and she looks like a, maybe a slightly prettier version of, a, of a regular, you know, young audience. But again, she looks like someone you would know, or you could be friends with, or you could, you, you, that could be you. And she and, doesn't have even her voice. Like she doesn't have oh, like a sultry voice. Like she has kind of a cute you know, kind of pixie type of yeah, voice. You know, like she, she does seem like a surfer a girl. Surf. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, like, it, you know, there's, there's those early scenes and eventually, um, you know, the Patrick Swayze character kind of takes over as the, as the surf guru, but she's the one who gives him his lessons. And yeah. there's a certain strength in that. She's, she's tough. The Lori Petty, I mean, also, you know, tank girl, it's, whole other thing so there's this cult of Lori Petty a well-deserved I think cult of Lori Petty but the fact that she can be both his sexual partner his guide um you know that she can wildly insult him and and he really falls for her I think I think that that's another part of that movie that I I always found really interesting and that I really respect is that he really falls for her first. Yeah. Um, yeah. They're like out on the water and you can tell that 
you know, her, who she is, is attracting him. She, you know, she's resistant to him because she thinks he's a tool, right. which, um, you know, he kind of is in the beginning, yeah. but he is, you know, here's, I mean, she's the dream, right? She's, she's beautiful. She's tough. She's talented. She's funny. She's quick. And I think it's, I think it's interesting. And I think it's interesting that near the end, um, you know, uh, Bodie says to him, you know, that she really fell for you. And the, the, the fact that he says she doesn't do that. You know, it's like yeah. we're get, she's yeah, right. not someone who falls right. in love with people. So we're already getting, you know, we get an idea of the type of person that she is, that she's, you know, she's strong. She and she's not she's someone who can, you know, date someone and not necessarily fall in love with them. And the fact that yeah. she and yeah. he's like, I don't think she, you know, fell that much for me, you know, and he's yeah. supposed to be like kind of the king of that group. And but she you know, was, I guess, self-possessed enough to, to, and probably smart enough also to know this is not the guy to fall for, you know? So we definitely have an image of her as being, um, not just tough, but smart, you know? Yeah. Uh, uh, and is not going to just, you know, she might sleep with you, but she's not going to fall in love with you. And if she does fall in love with you, it's, it means something. Yeah. Uh, she doesn't yeah, just fall in love with anyone. There there were a lot of movies from from that period where there were these, you know, pretty normal looking women with beautiful, beautiful men. I mean, we've are before we we started recording we were talking about the extremely, extremely problematic sixteen candles, which is a, still remains a heartbreak to me. Um, but, you know, the Jake character is this beautiful specimen of a man. And I, I, I don't, I'm not exactly sure what was going on during that era. But, I mean, I think someone in Hollywood understood that female audiences pay big money for box office. Yeah. And yeah. that it was not a bad idea to, to give someone who could relate to it, you know, uh, a female character, give that female character um, access to, like, the hottest male Yeah, but, at the, you know, it's interesting because even, even when I was a kid, though, when I saw Sixteen Candles, like, I didn't think, oh, that could happen to me. I really thought, well, that's a movie. You know, it didn't, it didn't ring, at least with that movie, it didn't ring true to me that he would fall for her. Like, I didn't see why he would have fallen for her. Whereas in Point Break, I totally got why he fell, why Keanu fell for Lori Petty. Like, I told, you know, I totally got why he would, you know, that just, that rang more true to me. Um, Yeah. And so, you know, it's not enough to just say, well, we're going to give the ordinary-looking girl a hot guy. Like it had, there has to be yeah. something about her that is genuine that you could say, yeah, I could see why that guy would fall for her. Yeah. Well, it's funny because I when I remember 
like the first time seeing both Point Break, but but especially Bull Durham in the movie theater because I think I was by myself when I went to see Bull Durham in the movie theater, and and the first time Brad Pitt shows up thinking like I, like every other woman in America, but I was younger by that you know was younger than the, probably the average moviegoer for that movie, and thinking like holy shit. Who, what, what is that? (laughs) Like, what is that? Yeah. And, um, you know, I mean, I'm not going to lie. Like, I revisit those movies and I have the exact same reaction now. I mean, my husband was sitting with me watching Point Break while I was getting ready for this. And he was like, your face is red. And I was like, yeah, I know. Look at him. <laughs> and my husband was like, yeah, you know what? I, I, I'm not going to lie. He's, he's like, he's dreamy. And, 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 and uh, the added, the added uh, uh, like ingredient of him being wet, like literally wet yes. all of half of the movie. Like, and nice. come on. Like, he's, he's, a, he's sweet. He's, he's a nice guy. Yeah. He's, he's like not he's not mean he's a he's really sweet he's especially tender with Lori Petty yeah and I always thought that those scenes between the two of them were really the best part of that movie um and you know not that you're holding that movie to a particularly like you know we're not we're not pretending that this is you know um like you said Citizen Kane but those scenes are really beautiful between the two of them, especially the first scene when they're sitting on the surfboards and he, he sort of, I think puts his hand on her knee or something. Yeah. Yeah. But those scenes and, and, and in Thelma and Louise, they're not falling in love. It is, it is, it's sex. And yeah. it's, I will say it, it, I not to get too personal, but I, I do think that that movie contributed to my feelings growing up feeling that one, I had every right to have consensual sex with whomever I pleased. Right. And that I did not have to be in love with someone to have sex with them. And that I could absolutely have sex with someone who was better looking than I was. (laughs) And that not only did I deserve it, but that I was going to, and you know, and I did. Yeah, and you are a gorgeous really, girl, though. So kind of hard well, to find please. a guy more attractive than you. Well, you're very kind, Demi Perryman. I, <laughs> I think the same of you, but um, but in 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 reality, <laughs> um, you know, like I, I really feel like I walked away from those those movies, and not just those movies, but but Susan Sarandon was a big part of it because Bull Durham was another really big. And I one loved for Bull me, Durham. Where, yeah. Yeah, you you have these two beautiful, beautiful men like tangling over Susan Sarandon, who by the way is gorgeous. Yeah. But she always reminded me like she's when my mom was in her, you know, twenties and thirties, she reminded me of Susan Sarandon at that age. There was a familiarity and I'm not saying they they, they weren't beautiful women, but we grew up with actresses who part of their great success was that they could look like normal people. Yeah. And I do think, especially for coming of the age movies, the mid nineties and the late nineties and all the way up till now that, I mean, indie movies, excluding indie movies, because movies like eighth grade and, and movies of that ilk right. are very different. I mean, the whole purpose of those movies, I think is, is to do something real and authentic and, and, 
you know, present a real world character and I applaud them for it. But again, if we're talking about mainstream films, because that's what the majority of people have access to and those are the movies that are marketed to them, it's really sad to me that my sister, who's 12 years younger, grew up watching movies where, like, you know, the big crux of the movie was to transform, uh, you know, the ugly duckling into the beautiful girl by literally taking off her fucking glasses. Right, right. You know, I mean, it just, to me, that was very depressing. To me, it's still very depressing to see. And I'm not saying that there weren't, there weren't ridiculously high standards for us when we were kids, but I remember when Nicole Kidman debuted, she debuted in Dead Calm. Yeah. And, you know, she had her big, wild, frizzy red hair. Yeah, and which I loved. Was, yeah, me too. And she was not, like, bodacious. I mean, she was, she was exquisitely beautiful, but also someone that lived in the real world. Yeah. And, you know, I can't say the same for, especially for coming of age, era you know or the coming of age movies in the in the 90s and in the 2000s and i don't i mean i'm not saying anything revelatory like i think <laughs> this is something we all know and we talk about and you know shit there have even been like parody movies based on that um that issue but well you I know i really do think these movies set up a generation of women to feel quite confident in their sexuality um, because of, of movies, mainstream movies like this. Yeah. And, you know, interestingly, uh, the first person who was going to direct Point Break was Ridley Scott. Oh, that's interesting. Who then did, who instead did Thelma and Louise. And, right. And so... Oh, that's really funny. It would be, I wonder... What do you think, like, how would those movies have been different, do you think, if, say, you know, Ridley Scott had done Point Break and Catherine Bigelow had done Thelma and Louise, or just, a, you know, if a woman had directed Thelma and Louise, do you think it would have been, you know, drastically different? I don't know. I mean, I, I, I tend not to think of, I mean, with the, with it, Take out the really obvious problem movies where you're like, if that had been directed by or written by a woman, that would have been a different thing. Um, I don't know. But I do know that Corey writing the script for Thelma and Louise made it what it was. I don't think a man could have written that film and... And, and gotten that movie. I agree. And I agree. Having said that, though, Ridley Scott did tell her, like, basically the first version of her script, or the, or the version that he read, was actually darker. And, and he said, um, his notes were, like, there, there are comic moments in here and don't lose them, and, like, sort of to lighten it up a bit and make it a little bit right. more comedic or just not, not, he sort of saw it as a serial, they called it a serial comedy, basically a dramedy. And I yeah. thought that's really interesting because I never, 
Like, I never thought of it as a dramedy. I thought of it as a drama. It's sort of an action-adventure, you know, buddy movie. But I never really thought yeah, of it as definitely. a comedy. Um, you know, there are moments, certainly, where you chuckle, but, but few, you know. And, and really, the moments that you chuckle are at the men, you know. I mean, yeah. at, at, at yeah. uh, uh, was it Christopher McDonald? who plays the, yeah. the, the husband, he's hilarious. He's awful, but he's, yeah, he's, he's hilarious in his goofballness, yeah. you know? Um, well, like that movie, if you, if you take all of the men in that movie and you, either you sort of like line them up on a chart, you know, in some ways, you know, if you put them all together, there's, that's, that's your average dude, right? You've got a little bit of each one of those characters. Um, and hopefully you have less of, of the, the, you know, Daryl, was it Daryl? Your dude, Daryl. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, it's interesting. I, Catherine Bigelow, I think directing Point Break, I, I think that you see her gender in those, in those scenes between Lori Petty and, and Keanu Reeves. Yeah. I think the fact that he's pursuing her, that he's in, he's so sweet with her and very tender with her, and and she also gets to fuck. I mean, she yeah. am I allowed to curse? Yes. I don't know. I'm sorry. Yes. yes. But you know, she's she's and not only that, but there's a, there's a really interesting moment early on in the movie where it's made intensely clear that she has have been with. Patrick Swayze and that maybe she's worked her way around the crowd and it's not it does not feel like slut shaming no Um, there's one line that that Patrick Swayze has that I got caught up on and then I thought maybe I took it out of context a little bit he says um mi casa es su casa right after he's basically said it won't bother me if you go off with Lori Petty who I used to have sex with right he's well he says what's mine is yours What's mine is yours. But then I kind of thought, well, okay, maybe he's like uh, saying, go get a beer or whatever. At least I hope so, because I want to, I want to, in my mind, want to keep, um, I want to keep that, you know, clean and safe for myself because I like this movie. Or, you know, um, or even if it's not, you know, it could still be seen as, you know, he's a dude. Like he is a, you know, he may not be like, he is the bad guy in a way of that movie and he is a surfer dude and it is surfer culture and you know it's not outside the realm of possibility that he would say that and mean it that way you know um because because when he says it like they turn away but keanu reeves kind of looks at him like what you know like keanu's character look doesn't really you know He's Keanu doesn't respond with yeah, you know, high five or whatever. Like he sort of gives him a look like, uh, okay, you know, like whatever, dude. Um, yeah, I, I, when I watched it last night, um, and I heard that line, I thought, I, I was the same way. I was like, I'm wondering exactly how he meant that. And, and, you know, Patrick Swayze, I think, is a, was a, good enough actor that I think he could have intentionally said it in an ambiguous way, you know, yeah. for you yeah, to yeah, interpret yeah, yeah. that how you interpret it. Um, 
So, you know, I don't think it's, I don't think it's um, unreasonable to think that that's how he meant it. But, but they didn't, you know, they didn't respond to it. They just walked away and were like, whatever. That's right. And, and what's her response? Her response is, I taught him that trick. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Um, That's right. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's. No, she, you know, Lori Petty, as as the, as the, it it clearly has the agency in, in, you know, all of those interactions. And, um. And I think it's interesting at the campfire scene, you know, and I feel like this is something that, um, that I could see Catherine Bigelow, like, um, sort of presence there is um when the guys are getting all macho and as is you know usually happens in action movies um and Lori Petty comments on it's like this is too much testosterone you know like like she comments on you guys are being stupid and macho and you know whatever like definitely and so and that's that doesn't happen really often in 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 action movies where, you know, there's not usually someone, male or female, who comments on the behavior of, of, right. of you know, of what they're doing. Uh, I No, I think it's, I actually think it's really important, um, even in 2018, that, you know, just recently, I said this actually in an earlier podcast, and maybe you remember who the guy's name was, um, but there's still this sense that, uh, women can't direct, you know, uh, uh, horror movies or action adventure, that there's some, for whatever reason, there are certain genres that are off limits to women that we just, you know, females are incapable of doing. And so I think Point Break in that sense is actually a really important movie um, because it was directed by a woman, you know, and it it totally dispels that myth that women you know, can't, can't be tough or can't direct men, uh, you know, macho guys in a, you know, well, in a, in a profitable movie. Yeah. And that's the other thing. This movie did well. Like, this wasn't some indie movie that was, you know, on the sidelines that no one, no one ever heard of and was obscure and whatever. That, that was a actually profitable movie that when it came out got good reviews and was you know and was really popular and everyone our age has seen it it's funny there's um when i was watching it the other night i had completely forgotten that there is that beach football scene which of course is like a you know a a mirror to the to the volleyball scene in top gun yes yes i remember I, i was saying to dan i was like this is where you see the difference in in a in a lady director, right? Because, all right, yeah, like '80s Tom Cruise, I, I'm still gonna say it's hot. And Val Kilmer, Tom, you know, Val Kilmer is smoking hot. Val Kilmer, definitely, but, um, yes. They're sweaty and they're playing. They're they're so there's something so gross about the idea of those dudes sweating in their jeans yes. and this idea that like we're supposed to want to have sex with them and like a man directed that scene right but the football right. scene in Point Break 
Um, I mean, still, it's still like this, like sort of ridiculousness on the on the sand. But they're they're still hot, right? And right. Johnny Utah, you know, is is still um, extremely appealing playing football on the beach and they end up splashing around in the water and, 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 and then there's, you know, the reveal of, of the fact that they all know who he is, which I also have to say is one of my, it, one of my favorite things about Point Break is that the undercover FBI agent is um, a very highly recognizable Right. football star yes and yeah. they know where he lives and they know his name and yeah. and you're like right this was before the era where you could google anything right right um i still i'm not sure that that um you know the fbi would allow you that um kind of um freedom with your Yes. with your identity when you're trying to be undercover. But, okay, whatever, I'm going to go with it. Um, but definitely not something you could do today in, right. in the right. era of the, of the Google. Yeah. Um, but definitely, definitely that's, I, I think that's one of those scenes where you're like, yes, a lady directed this because she keeps it, she keeps it hot, right? She keeps. And Lori Petty is playing in the game. Them. It's not yeah, just in the game. guys against guys. Yeah. Like, there are women playing no, as well. No, not on the sidelines. Yep, and that's definitely got to be because Catherine Bigelow was making that movie. Absolutely. I mean, I don't even think a guy... I mean, unless it was specifically in the script, I just don't know that a man would have done that, would have put the girls yeah, in know. the football game. You know, That would be a good question for Catherine uh, Bigelow. Because, yeah. because there were... Um, I'm just trying, you know, you mentioned Top Gun, and I'm thinking there were women around, but there certainly weren't any women in that volleyball game. I mean, those those guys really seem to be um, more interested in each other, you know? Yeah, exactly. Uh, uh, um, but no, it was, it was, it was, I, I really, um, I enjoyed that scene. Like you said, I thought that was very interesting uh, that that Lori Petty was playing football with them and, and catches the ball and makes a touchdown. Yeah, exactly. exactly. Like, like she's not, not only is she playing, but she's actually playing well. Like she's not some silly girl who can't catch a ball or I'll break a nail or whatever, you know. Yeah, yeah. She's willing to get, you know, dirty, you know, along with them. Yeah. Well, I mean, there's there's something very appealing about that too. She's the cool girl. Yeah. And um, she's beautiful, and she is sexy, and she can play football. Yeah. <laughs> um, which I think is actually it's something about our generation that I have always really appreciated. Um, that that we did, at least I did personally, grow up, grow up definitely feeling that I could be. Um, a woman who was sexually proactive, who was would not be slut shamed, and if anybody tried to, I would kick the ass or not care. Right. Um, but who could also, you know, who could who could rip a bong hit, who could play touch football. Right. Um, you know, and 
And I do, I, I wonder very much if that had to do with the kinds of movies that we were watching. Uh, I, and I, I mean, it also gives yeah. me a lot of hope because we also grew up with Disney princess movies and yes. not, not that, I mean, we grew up with Cinderella and Snow White and the older Disney princess movies. I was way too old for things like we were, we're the same age, but we were too old for things like the little mermaid, which I have intense problems with. But, um, but I think it's, I think it's safe to say that you are, you are not, you are the sum of all of those things that you watch. And so in some ways, I think the hypersensitive feeling of wanting to, to direct, I have two kids now. And so this hyper sense of controlling what they, what kind of art they consume, especially for those of us who are in the film industry or or cinephiles who have seen a lot and, um, you know, are tracking on that. I I do think, I wonder to an extent if I've been overly controlling of what they consume. You were talking about Grease before and about your mom's feelings of, guilt having let you see that movie when you were very young and wondering how it influenced you. And I, I also consumed Grease. I mean, it would be on a couple times a year and, you know, it would start, it was like the nine o'clock movie mm-hmm. and it was like the one night of the year that my mom would let me stay up really, really late. Right. And do I think that um, that movie that is probably really bad for women, do I think that that movie, you know, set, up some problem for me later in life and I really don't think that it did yeah. and I don't think that Cinderella did either or Sleep Beauty or any of the you know well I think part of that was really no. I think part gender. of that though was our parents I mean we had the balance of you know yeah women who were had certainly lived through the 60s and the 70s and were you know strong independent women who were not going to, you know, allow us to fall into the, you know, Snow White Cinderella fantasy trap. I mean, you know, it's... I will say, though, as much as as I deeply, deeply believe in, you know, parental influence and and watching working moms and growing up with working moms and watching them, I will say, I'm going to give movies like Bull Durham and... Uh, Solomon Louise a lot, a lot of credit for balancing out that other stuff. Um, yeah. I really do. I, I because because at that age, at at those really pivotal ages, I I'm not sure that you're tracking that you're like looking up to your your mothers in the way in a way that influences you in that way. I think in a lot of ways you are looking. At mainstream media, and and I would say that music had a lot to do with it too, right? Like we had a we had Blondie, and we had you know a lot of and with Madonna. I mean, Madonna. No one was more sex positive than Madonna. Yeah, Madonna. I mean, I for some reason I was less drawn to her than I was like Stevie Nicks, and um, because I think I was really into bands, and so to have. Um, women that w- bands that were fronted by women, yeah, yeah, to me was more of a like, wow, like yeah. that's power, right? Madonna was her own thing, and in some ways she was powerful because she was this 
you know, she had this sexual prowess and she was Madonna. She only needed one name. But for me, I think the Lori Petty's, I would put them in the, and, and the Susan Sarandon's would put them in the, um, in the Stevie Nicks category where, you know, you, you are still a real human being. You're still a normal person that, um, I can identify with on some level, but you have this level of power that is not just sexual, but can also be sexual. And, 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 and we're intelligent. I mean, yeah, you know, they're, totally. they're, you can be, um, you know, sex positive, but, but kind of be an idiot. I mean, I, you know, Susan Sarandon yeah. projected intelligence and, and yeah. self-awareness, you know, and even, uh, and independence. and independence and, and, and Gina Davis did too. Maybe not that character so much in the beginning, but, but, you know, she leaves her husband. I mean, she goes on that vacation, on that fishing trip, without asking her husband. You know, uh, she just says, forget it. I'm going to do it. You know, I'm going to do what I want to do. Uh, and so even a character who's sort of in the place of being kind of the, not ditzy, but sort of the flaky kind of, you know, yeah. um, she was certainly not, she did not have her... Uh, shit together the way Susan Sarandon did, her character at yeah. least. Um, but, but you know, she she definitely was not. Um, you know, she had her own she had her own agency as well, and she certainly found it more along the way. Uh, yeah, you know, and I do have, I I have a as I, we were talking a little bit before. Um, before we start recording, that I have a few issues with Thelma and Louise, but but I, you know, I, part of it is the age that I'm at. Like when I saw it when I was 16 in the theater, I did not have those issues, <laughs> you know. And and watching yeah. it now as a as a 43 year old, there are a few things where I go. Uh, you know, like I mentioned the scene where she, you know, Gina Davis is poolside in a bikini. And, and I just thought, you know, it made me think actually of that movie Untamed Heart with Marissa Tomei, yeah. where the, she's not raped, but she is attacked. And, and afterward, it's a, I mean, it's sort of similar to Gina Davis. I mean, they're, they're, they're not, neither one of them is actually raped, but they're certainly attacked and assaulted. And, and the next scene, like the next time you see her, she's in like sweatpants and a sweatshirt and then to, and like big baggy clothes. And to me, that sort of, that seemed to ring a little bit more true to me than to be poolside in a bikini. Um, and, and also just the immediate, uh, attraction that she, I mean, Hey, any woman is going to be attracted to Brad Pitt in that movie, certainly. But, but the fact that she, I, I don't know. I, it's, it's, I find it interesting. I don't know. I have not, thankfully, I mean, I can't, you know, I've not been in that position, um, 
where I've been assaulted, but I just, I know me, and I just feel like if what happened to her happened to me, I don't care how good looking the guy is, I don't know that I'm going to want to have sex with someone, like, the next day. Right. You know? I mean, that's where, that's where, uh, you know, obviously you're, you're at, you know, your suspension of disbelief, you're, I remember, (laughs) like, yeah. So, such a weird segue. Uh, I had my kids watch The Sound of Music the other night, and um, you know, as we watch it with a, a couple of other adults and their kids, and we were sitting there, and the adults were just laughing our asses off because things move so quickly in that movie. Right. It's like it's like you know everything happens really really fast, right? Because it's yeah. a movie. And I remember the little the little ones were sort of like, wait a minute, what? They were clearly, to some extent, perplexed right. by um, the speed at which things were changing. And, you know, we kept saying to them over and over again, it's a movie, it's a movie. You know, it's movies are a certain length, and you got to get a lot done in a short period of time. Right. And right. so things move quickly. I mean, I think I've also was talking about, I mean, there, there are clearly movies that, um, you know, you see now that maybe, you know, were acceptable, had acceptable things, you know, or things that were, I should say, better phrase it and say that were accepted by the mainstream, um, that would not be acceptable today and that shouldn't have been okay then. But there are other movies where I do have an ability to keep them in their in their era, I guess, in a way. And so yeah. the things that you're talking about with Thelma and Louise, for some reason, I, I don't know, I, those things never occurred to me to bother me. But, um, but there's something also, certain sort of, I don't, I mean, I would probably get in trouble a thousand ways over for saying what I'm about to say, but there's something I wonder if there's something sort of empowering about Gina Davis's ability to be a victim one minute or, or, or very close to a victim one minute and then to gratify herself sexually the next. I, I wonder if there's something empowering about that in saying yes you can be both a victim and you don't have to deny yourself something that you want right because right. you were a victim you don't have to go into this i like i, I remember so tangential but i do i remember being younger and you know, going through a breakup and the next day thinking like, I don't give a shit. I want to go out. I want to get laid. I'm thinking like, should I stay home and sort of pretend I'm grieving? Yeah. Because <laughs> I've had this breakup. Because you're supposed to. Clearly different than being assaulted. But I wonder if there's something in Selma and Louise that some women felt was empowering about a woman who is supposed to have been traumatized. I mean, also, the, the the difference between Thelma and Louise, clearly, is that one has actually been raped. And, 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 you know, Louise doesn't 
get over it. I mean, right. they die because Louise has been so traumatized by this and she's trying to get something back and she gets back her control and sadly has to die for it. Yeah. But and I've but, and I'm, so, I'm a little I'm a little I'm sort of on the fence about that too. Yeah. Well, of course. I mean, that's that's a, a big that's a big part of the problem for, you know, that movie and and probably, you know, half of American literature is that, you know, women who get their power have to die. Um, yeah, there, but there's also sort of the... Virginia Woolf. Right, right. And so, yeah, I mean, I kind of go... It's, it's, it almost depends on the day and the mood that I'm in, how I'm going to feel about that, because... Yeah. When I saw it this last time, I thought, well, this is sort of a, it's sort of a Butch and Sundance ending, you know? I mean, you know, yeah. at the end of, at the end of, you know, Butch, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, they, they know what's going to happen and they're, they, you know, they're like, okay, let's do it. And they go out together, yeah. you know, in a blaze of glory. And so in a way, it's sort of that type of ending and... Which in a which is actually kind of macho in a way, uh, and so mm -hmm. and so there are some days where I think, well, they're you know the female butch and Sundance, and they're going out on their terms. They're not they're not going to be taken out by these men who are behind them. You know they're gonna they because they yeah. know that um, you know if they turn themselves in their life is not going to be good. You know, they're going to go to jail. Well, they're going to go... Already, they've broken out of jail, right? They've broken out of... One's broken out of her... The jail of her trauma and one's broken out of the jail of her day-to-day um, -day life. And so they're not going to trade that in. They'd rather die than go to... Go, like, you know, from metaphorical jail to real jail. Right. But so I get I, that. Course, but... I'm very lucky. I have an ability to... to and it, with the exception again of things that are really egregious, I have somehow have the magical ability. Maybe it's from being a programmer. Maybe it's from being really naive to be able to take away the things that I don't like about a movie, or like to be. I, it's not taking away the things that I don't like. It's it's. Um, I can stop myself from overanalyzing movies that I really grew up loving yeah uh, i don't I, I i don't know if i have that ability with with newer movies there are some movies once in a while um but i think especially because those movies are so gratifying for women and especially because i don't see a lot of that now i mean i think call me by your name to some extent gave me the kind of thrill that movies like Bull Durham and, and, um, and Film and Louise gave me that sort of like that, you know, butterflies in your stomach feeling of yeah. like, you know, you know, on screen love and romance. You don't get that very often. Yeah. And and that and that female gaze is very much part of that. I think. I think there are not a lot of movies now that women get where women get to watch men like that. There was a movie um, several years ago called The Guest, 
which is a genre movie. It's one of my favorite movies I've ever seen at Sundance and remains one of my favorite contemporary genre movies. But Dan Stevens is in the lead. Have you seen this movie? I don't think so, but it sounds familiar. You have to see it. Okay. You'll love it. It's so much fun. The guest. Um, okay. In a, in, a, in, a, in a very quick synopsis, it's about a family who has uh, lost a son um, in, I think it's in Afghanistan. Now I feel like a jerk, but um, it's either in Iraq or Afghanistan. And um, a very attractive young man claiming to have been his best friend and comrade um, shows up at their door to, to sort of carry out his, the, the, the young man's last wishes and tell them how much he, tell the family how much she was, they were loved. And they have a teenage daughter and a sort of slightly younger son. And it plays out from there. And it's very mysterious and um, fun. But Dan Stevens is so hot in that. I mean, it's ridiculous. And everything he does sort of leading up to the big turn in the movie is just like it, it compounds his hotness right. and in a really cheeky, clever way. I mean, it's very intentional. It's very cheeky. But there's a scene where he comes out of a, a steam-filled bathroom with a towel around his waist just below that hip bone. Right, right. You know, that, right. That. And I so was like in a movie screening at Sundance and thought, holy shit, that's, I miss that. Yeah. That scene doesn't happen anymore. And because that scene is designed for women and you can, you can be gay, straight, bi, anything you want, but every woman I know has an appreciation. Well, not every woman I know, but a lot of women <laughs> I know have an appreciation for that in the same way that, that they have an appreciation for beautiful female bodies, but yeah. we don't get to see beautiful male bodies like that in that way very often. And I miss it and I want it to come back. I really do. I, I, I really implore filmmakers to make sex positive movies with beautiful people um, having hot sex with their clothes off and not keeping their bras and their socks on. Please. Yes. Um, I think call me by your name was a good first step, but again, I would have liked to have seen more in that movie. Um, I think uh, there was some, you know, there was definitely some controversy over the fact that you didn't get to see enough in that movie. Yeah. And I totally agree with it. I, I think that that's residue of the last, 15 years of yeah. this weird turn to hiding sex in, in movies. I don't understand it. I'm, I'm ready for it to come back. Yeah, no, I agree. I agree. And, you know, you see it in Point Break. I mean, uh, uh, Patrick Swayze, I mean, he is ripped. <laughs> and he's, you oh know. Oh, my God, he's so hot. I mean, you know, and 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 I think it's interesting that you know, and this is the, I feel like this is the difference between um, scenes in Point Break and scenes in Thelma and Louise. I felt like there were scenes, or maybe not even scenes, but moments where, you know, Susan Sarandon is like cleaning her 
she's like has a handkerchief or bandana that she's getting wet and she's wiping her neck and yeah she has a white yeah. t-shirt on and that's wet and like you can sort of see her like the sort of the outline of her boob and it just seemed like it felt to me like there were moments where they were it was like this isn't the type of movie where you're going to see a lot of female nakedness so we have to try and find ways to show it whereas it felt it just felt a little bit more um organic i guess in point break actually the when they were nude like it made sense you know for right. them to be nude or for him to have his top off or you know uh and keanu reeves does not have his shirt off like, he has it once you know in in when they're actually having sex but other than that he's fully clothed yeah, you know, like my one, maybe like my big criticism of that movie, like please for the love, take your shirt off a little more. <laughs> yes, yes, um, but it seemed more organic. Like it seemed, you know, he's not going to just take his shirt off to have his shirt off for no reason, and and right. and uh, you know, but he's, you know, that final scene where he has the long hair and he's the rain is pouring down on him. He's fully clothed. He could not have been sexier. Yeah. You know, that listen, Keanu was 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 remains to be, I think, um, you know, for a lot of hetero women of our generation, the pinnacle of, you know, male beauty and, and I I love it i mean he's i don't know i mean he i'm i'm very pleased that he's my generation um and brad pitt too but i i think keanu was even had his i don't know he's tall dark and handsome you know he is that yeah pinnacle of but we really have male beauty but we really have Catherine bigelow and point break to thank for um him being an action star. I mean, he was not, yeah. he would have not been an action star in the 80s. I mean, when you think of like action movies, you think of Stallone or Schwarzenegger, like yeah. super manly, yeah. you know, um, macho guys, which again, I think was men's idea of what an action star would look like. It's this beefcake guy, you know? Yeah. Um, and and coming out of, you know, also the days of, like, wrestling and, you know, the, the, the big Hulk Hogan and that look was, that's what an action star looks like. And here we have, you know, uh, Keanu Reeves and even Patrick Swayze is, he's a song and dance man, really. I mean, yeah. Patrick Swayze was a dancer. Uh, he And he had just done Ghost, which I actually never liked ghost but but he but he was not he wouldn't you know if you asked a someone in the 90s early like late 80s early 90s to name an action star they would not have named Keanu Reeves or Patrick Swayze like those were not you know yeah, what was considered right what were yeah, considered because Keanu Reeves was my own private Idaho. I mean, that, I think that also came out in 91. It did. And, and you know, he was Bill and Ted, um, you know, which had a super strong following, but not necessarily, it, but, you know, and they were like, he and Alice Hunter were super hot. 
Yeah, but they were like um, dopey stoner dudes. Like they weren't. Yeah, right. You know. They were like they were like your buddies. They were not necessarily dudes that you would um, think of quite in that in that way. Um, but I'm very I'm very proud that that those are our you know those are our male sex symbols of that era. Um, they they were they I think they're also interesting dudes. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I, I always felt like Keanu Reeves projected a civility and a kindness and a sort of warmth um, in, in pretty much everything that he was in, even when, on, you know, on the occasions where he's played a morally ambiguous character. But he projects that. And I always felt the same way about, um, about uh, Patrick Swayze. You know, that yeah. he projects a sort of um, softness, which yes. I think may be key to the female gaze because, um, you know, finding someone attractive definitely has to do with the cut of their jib, but it also <laughs> has to do with, you know, the sense that they're not going to murder you, you know, right? Like, <laughs> right. No, yeah. it's true. It's someone that you can look at, and you feel like you would be uh, safe with. And, and I don't mean yeah. like in a protective, like you know, I no, women no, need no, to be I protected mean, type yeah. of way. But, but, but that too. And there's nothing wrong with wanting to be with someone who you feel could protect you, but not like in a, you know, not in a Stallone way. You know, yeah. more of a emotional protection. Yeah, you I know? always thought sort of a, of Denzel that way. Yes, was another one. Um, you know, he he was older. It's funny because I I think Keanu and and those guys are older than we are. At Denzel, for some reason, maybe he's even a little bit older. But Denzel was always that way for me too, where I was always like he he projected this very sexy masculinity but he also projected uh, like a safeness yes yes um, for me he was always a little bit he always seemed a little bit older so it wasn't quite the same thing um because i would have put him more in a you know closer to a dad category right, right. sorry denzel um but a hot but, dad <laughs> but a hot dad and <laughs> Um, but he was that way too, where you felt like, you know, those were, you know, the, the, the human being that they are and the character sort of morph, they meld a little bit. And, and in some ways, maybe that's what a sex symbol is. Maybe that's what, you know, a, like a, you know, that is where you kind of can't separate their you know who who they project in real life from their characters right right um well this has been an amazing conversation uh i know about- i i mean i didn't like go, go yeah this we've been going for an hour and a half <laughs> but but i i will definitely be um continuing my thoughts about 
both Keanu and Brad, boy, we didn't even really talk that much about Brad. My God, how could I know, we and Brad, well, we're going to have to do a part two. Um, but yeah, no, we Brad is... We not even gotten the Legends of the Fall. <laughs> yes, oh gosh, yes, Legends of the Fall. Man. Legends of the Fall. That was that damaged hot dude. Yeah, man, that was that was wow. Yeah, even uh, oh gosh, his name is pa- Aiden. Aiden Quinn is in that too. Uh, oh, and he's super gorgeous. Sexy. Yes, that's uh, uh, yeah. not, not so much now, but but uh, yes, Legends of the Fall. He was definitely that was that was quite a movie. For many reasons, yeah. uh, that's so many reasons, and you know that that predates the Revenant and and men fighting bears. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Uh, uh, um, no, Legends of the Fall. You want to have sex with everybody in that movie? Yeah, Le- Legends of the Fall and a, and a River Runs Through It. Yeah, the two oh. of those movies back. Yeah, those are. But no, Brad Pitt, you know, I feel like Brad Pitt's character in a way, not that Thelma and Louise in a way is sort of a, is sort of a modern noir. You know, um, if you think of noir thematically as, you know, a, a character who uh, through accident um, yeah, or or circumstance, An ordinary character who yeah. goes into you know who who is fall, falls into criminal behavior through really yeah. no fault of their own, um, yeah. and 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 often dies at the end. Uh, yeah, uh, Brad Pitt would definitely be the femme fatale character because yeah, it's you know absolutely. he's hot, but he's also the reason why they they really end up becoming criminals and robbing banks or robbing grocery stores because they, you know, because he steals their money. Uh, yeah. You know, he's the hot stranger who comes in and seduces them, seduces, you know, Thelma and, and uh, you know, takes her money. So he... And it was 100% worth it. Definitely. <laughs> definitely. <laughs> definitely. I have, a, I have a little issue with Harvey Keitel. I love the character but it is in the south and he ju- and i've and every time i see it i just think he's so new york like how did how did the, how did this character get to nowheresville you didn't believe the harvey Keitel southern accent <laughs> i wasn't aware that there was one <laughs> oh yeah, he does a southern accent for sure. Okay, I must have I must have oh, missed yeah. it. It was a no, it, it was really didn't work for you then I guess. No, it was a southern accent by way of, you know, East Fourth Street. Uh yeah, by, right, exactly. By way of Brooklyn. Yeah, yeah. Uh you know, and I and I love Harvey Keitel. He's a wonderful actor and I think his character is is really important and good and I love what he does in the movie and I think that his sort of, you know, over-the-phone conversations and, and relationship that develops between his character and, and Louise is is important. But, but and I've always thought that that last conversation that he has where, where Gina Davis ends up hanging the phone up because she's taking yeah. too long, I feel like she's decided at that point that this she's not going back. 
you know, she's decided yeah. that this is, she's not even going to get to Mexico. She's going to go in a blaze of glory. She may not know exactly how, but I think she's yeah. already made that decision because when Gina Davis suggests it, you know, she's not like blown away by, oh my God, I can't believe you. You know, she's like, really? You're ready? You know, like she's already there, uh, which is yeah. why she doesn't care if they, if he finds out where they are, because she's not going to go back. But, uh, but no, I've always thought I, 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 I don't know. I mean, I don't know who else maybe, you know, I don't know who else I would have gotten because I do love Harvey Keitel, but the, the, yeah, it's just that New York, he's just so New York that it's, it's a little, it's a little hard to, to believe that entirely. You know, I almost want like a, I don't know, like a, like a, like a Tommy Lee Jones or a Tom Scarrett, you know, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. In that, in that I, role. You will never sway me from my love of Harvey Keitel in that movie, Emmy Curryman. So you, you okay. I, so I, 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 I sent, I respectfully dissent. Okay. Uh, but although, although now you've got me thinking about Tom Skerritt, who I also have had a long running thing for, um, that that's another podcast. Yes. Or you know who would have also been interesting in that role? One someone who I know is one of your favorites, uh the the unfortunately dearly departed Harry Dean Stanton. Oh. Uh. Well, and if Harry Dean Stanton should just automatically have been put in anything and (laughs) um, would have made everything better. Actually, you know, that's really funny. He would have been perfect in that role. But, I mean, if you talk about Harry Dean Stanton, then you'll never get me off the phone. (laughs) Well, that will be be our next podcast episode, is an episode devoted to Harry Dean Stanton. Movies that Harry Dean should have been in. Yes, yes. Uh, yes, definitely. Well, thank you, Maggie. This has been awesome. You are the best, Emmy. I'm so glad to to talk. This has been great, uh, and I really look forward to doing this again. Me too, lady. Me too.